Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Thursday, March 4th. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson Smith, our producers, uh, Christian Ryan and Mike Tassoni. Thanks as always for listening. You can always subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can rate, you can review, you can do all of that good stuff. And spring training games have begun. Was kind of thinking about this today as the, the Blue Jays are playing the Detroit Tigers. And on two occasions, at least, that, that I caught when I was paying attention, Charlie Montoyo just kind of decided that you know with an out or two outs that's it <laughs> inning over i'm done and i kind of thought about the poor like tigers hitter who's on deck who's coming up and thinking hey i got like some pretty good hit in here right because it's you know whoever they they've got on the ropes you know that's the only reason why you would be like ending the inning early is because a pitcher's gotten up there on his on his pitch count that hitter's probably thinking hey this is a good uh, opportunity especially if it's a young guy the guy's trying to show himself and prove himself Hey, I'm going to come up and get this AB. Ah, not so much. It's got to be a little bit crushing. Yeah, exactly. I think just about every aspect of a spring training game is subject to change, basically, and probably more this year than ever before, just because the rules are different. But yeah, I mean, you can start an inning and not have it be totally completed. I saw the Royals the other day ended up basically turning a, a game against a real opponent into an interest squad game, despite the right. fact that they're paying customers there. I mean, that tells you just how willing teams are to play with these structures and, and basically come up with just a way to get the reps that they want. And then once they've got that, it seems like they're good to go and it ceases to resemble a major league game. No, it's like it's a step towards controlled scrimmages yeah. in a way, right? It's not all the way there yet. Like it's not quite, you know, NFL controlled scrimmage or anything, but it is a very much like a step in that direction. Even with coming into the game, sometimes they're saying, hey, we're only going to play six today or we're only going to play seven. If this continues on this road, yeah, maybe you get to the point where you've got like batters coming back up again in, in the inning. It's just one of those like sort of pandemic related things that's been introduced into the game for safety quote unquote reasons lately that I could actually see taking hold and continuing going forward in a post pandemic world. You know, not that we will ever get to a post pandemic world, but I do think that like this is something we're going to see for springs to come where these games less and less resemble games and are more so just scrimmages. Right. And the purpose of them these days is less so geared toward fans because there aren't quite as many fans in the stands. And so it becomes more of this kind of internal exercise, right? And it becomes a lot more inward looking and development. And it's a lot less about performing and putting on a show or a spectacle for the people of Lakeland, Florida or Dunedin yeah. or Surprise, Arizona, whatever the case. They're not really like, because that's obviously how baseball, you know, sees itself at the very highest level is it is entertainment and certainly if you think about you know say the harlem globetrotters like that's all entertainment they're not focused on player development in the least but it seems like major league baseball is shifting in the spring training in a minor leagues mode of things to being more all right this is development this is not for your entertainment this is for our purposes yeah, they are going to bump up against a, a weird sort of economic thing that, there where it's like it's still a product and it's right. still like an entertainment product that they are selling. They, they, people are still paying to go to these games, even at the limited capacity right now. Those tickets still cost something and people are still buying beers and things. But, you know, what, what, what does it say on your ticket? <laughs> it's because like, you can't even say on the ticket right now that you're going to get, you know, nine innings, eight and a half innings of, of baseball. You might get only five. You might get a bunch of innings end after two outs. 
it's almost just like a tour of the facility, right? Like people will yeah. pay for a tour of, of Rogers Center, pay for a tour of Wrigley Field. And that's kind of what you're getting. And oh, they happen to be playing. You know, it's, it's more of that than it is you're truly sitting down for a full nine innings of baseball and I can score this game in a way that makes sense and everything's going to flow. Don't expect that if you go to a minor league game or a spring training game. Yeah, and so sort of two offshoots from that. Number one, it gets harder for that guy that I was mentioning earlier to stand out and make a team, right? It's like a young dude in camp who, you know, isn't just in these games working on things or, uh, you know, who doesn't have a guaranteed daily job and is trying to impress and get those opportunities. It actually kind of gets harder to get those opportunities and at least to show out when you do get them. And then the second one, which is related to that, is the spring training stats and results were always meaningless, but now more than ever. Like they are particularly like not something that you should ever reference to say anything and to draw any conclusions from whatsoever. Like in a, you know, pre in the pre times, I mean, I remember talking to hitters who would tell me like, like, I'm just out there, you know, trying to see breaking balls. Like I'm not even really, you know, in season, of course, I'm hunting fastballs. That's what every hitter is doing. I'm actually looking for breaking balls because I want to see if I'm picking up the spin out of the hand, right? And I want to get used to kind of seeing that movement and tracking it as it's coming in. I talked to guys who would say like they're purposefully trying to get to two strikes. So like maybe they're going to, you know, either take some hittable pitches early in a bat or chase really in a bat just to get two strikes, just to feel that adrenaline and that anxiety of a two strike situation because they're trying to work on their two strike approach. So it was always pointless to every point to spring results, but in this environment, Ben, more so than ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still think there is a possibility of taking something away from a spring training game. We've both done it before. Probably we'll both do it again, but I think that <laughs> later you know, this week, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. It might happen within hours rather than days. <laughs> but I do think when you're looking at a spring game, what actually means something might be approach oriented. You know, yes. it might be, a singular skill that stands out and that wasn't visible before. Uh, so for example, a, a player who's moving really quickly, a, a player who's throwing really quickly, those are the kind of things that might jump out at you in the, in a spring game, but results stats, you're not going to take away much from that. Yeah. Having baseball savant for these spring games this year has been a godsend, dude. I'm very much enjoying having, I guess it's TrackMan that they got set up everywhere that's feeding that data in, but it all looks like accurate. And so I am able to see every pitcher's velocity in a way. Like there were times covering springs past where you'd go to parks and it's like, is there going to be a radar gun? Is it going to be sometimes in Dunedin? It was like, is it going to be operational today? Right. Is it going to be yeah. working? And then there's also that element of like, can you trust it? Cause then you would hear things about all oh, that gun's hot. You know, guys always get really good readings on that gun. And now, you know, I, I kind of assume that this is all uniform and, and accurate, or at least more so than it was in the past. So it's really helpful to have that. And it's helpful just even to have kind of the pitch plots of where these pitches are ending up and what type of pitches guys are throwing and what their approaches are, like following along with Alec Manoa's start, or not his start. He came in after Simeon Woods Richardson the other night and just seeing how he was approaching the Yankees hitters, looking at like Elvis Luciano's pitch chart, which I immediately texted to you and Shai today because it was the most like typical Elvis Luciano pitch chart you've ever seen where it was like either the pitch went to the backstop or it was the nastiest thing you've ever seen on the outside edge or it hit the guy in the head, right? Like, so it was like just the most prototypical Luciano stuff you've ever seen. Like just having that data and that information. Uh, so I guess I am, I, I can contradict myself. It's my podcast. That's I right. guess you can take something from these games as far as like approach from, from the pitchers. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you're looking at a guy who comes in and he's just, you know, 
dotting his breaking ball in the outside corner, low and away, and, and hitting the opposite corner with his change up. And then fastballs top of the zone. You're looking at that. Okay, this, this guy is locating where he wants. You can see the approach. You can see the execution. You can see the velocity. So, all right, that's like about as much as you can take, especially from afar. We're not yeah. seeing most of these games. We are seeing none of them in person. So, but that's, that's a glimpse. That's the kind of thing that we can at least look at and take something somewhat concrete away from. But, you know, if like, let's say for argument's sake that Joe Panic hits 450 in spring, like, I don't care. I literally do not care. Is there a number that Joe Panic could hit this spring that would make you care? Like, if he no. batted a thousand, would you care? No. I mean, as a novelty, I would, but I wouldn't draw any conclusion from it whatsoever. If he was hitting lasers, like if, if even if they were outs, like if he hit 115 mile an hour lasers every time up, then sure. I would change my opinion about Joe Pan. Right. But he could literally hit a thousand with a 5,000 OPS and I'd be like, <laughs> all right, whatever. So uh, to kind of spin off from this conversation then as it pertains to this Blue Jays camp, like are there any battles then, I guess? Like are there any competitions that it's sort of worth keeping an eye on in games or even just in how the club is talking about players as camp progresses. Cause then you, you layer that what we've just been talking about in with the fact that pretty veteran club, a lot of guys on guaranteed big league deals. We probably have a pretty good idea of like, I don't know, 24 out of 26 opening day roster spots, all, you know, assuming health, which is the most yeah. dangerous assumption you can make in this game. Like, are there any battles, any competitions we should be looking at? I see maybe two, uh, you know, you could, and you can say, all right, that bench spot with Espinal or Panic or Bravic Valera, maybe that's a spot, you know, for, for argument's sake. But really, that's going to be a rotating door all year, you would assume. So it's kind of like that final spot in the bullpen. You know, it's maybe there's a, a battle there for opening day, but I think that's that's far from fixed. I think it's Panics to lose. Valera being out of options is interesting. We know the mm -hmm. club likes him and they like his versatility. Like he played center in Venezuela yep. all winter, which is like pretty interesting. So I like maybe, you know, because like Aspinall is pretty easy to option him. He's going to get his, his opportunities this year. Like I promise you. But I think it's, you know, panics to lose. Valera, you know, maybe an outside chance of working his way in there. But also Blue Jays probably a pretty good chance of sneaking them through waivers at the end of camp if they really need to. So that's probably a secondary look for me i think the, the only one that i really see is catcher and whether kirk can basically out hit mcguire for that spot and i think he should i mean from what we've seen there's a lot of reason to believe that kirk is a much better hitter than mcguire of course mcguire also is out of options so that's kind of a roster management question but you know based on what we've seen of alejandro kirk he seems like a better option than reese mcguire just seems like a much better bat and someone who can handle the pitching staff at least in the in the short glimpses that we've seen. So to me, I, I'd be leaning Kirk at this point. Yeah, I guess the one thing would be the final like spot or two in the bullpen, but that's also such a revolving door that it almost doesn't matter who breaks in the bullpen on opening day because day two of the season is liable to be different. Yep. So I agree with you. Like that backup catcher spot is like kind of the one area where, yeah, there's some, some in intrigue here. And I think because it actually like directly impacts the 40, because Reese McGuire is out of options, right? So if he's on the team, you're fine. You preserve your depth. If Kirk wins that job and goes forward, and I do not think there's room to carry three catchers on this club on opening day, so it's going to be two. So if it is Kirk, then you're exposing Reese McGuire to waivers. I have to think, even though Reese McGuire's major league track record is not super impressive at the plate, he's a pretty proven defender and still relatively young. At that point, 
you expose a guy to waivers in those like last days of spring training when there's a lot of movement on the edges of rosters, I have to think there's a club out there that is likely going to be picking him up. I think there's a good chance, right? It's almost like it reminds me of the discussion we've had around Kevin Gosman, right? And the Jays pursuing him. And, you know, if they were to trade for him, then he wouldn't have that choice anymore. Like there's always demand for catchers. And if someone's available on waivers or in a, in a low stakes trade, then it's not like you have to persuade him. You know, it's, he doesn't really have a say in the matter. So I think that in itself to acquire someone who's capable at the big league level of playing a very demanding position, I, I do think that there would be a need and someone would probably take him. Wouldn't the default for the Blue Jays then be just to preserve the depth? Like it's the easy play to make is to carry Reese McGuire to open the season, have Alejandro Kirk go off to the alternate site and continue to develop. And then look, three weeks into the year, if if Reese McGuire is like, oh, for April, you can DFA him then and actually probably have a better opportunity to pass him through waivers then than you would at the end of spring. I don't know that you can make a really compelling case that having Alejandro Kirk's bat, which like clearly he has had much more impressive major league results than than Reese McGuire offensively, obviously in a much smaller sample, but still I would say his potential as a hitter, Alejandro Kirk is much higher than Reese McGuire's. Having that bat on your roster the first three weeks of the season, I don't know if that's making or breaking your 2021. I don't know if you're gonna like make the playoffs or not based on that, right? So I think as the Blue Jays how do you kind of argue your way out of preserving your catching depth and not exposing Reese McGuire to waivers at the end of spring? Well, you know, I don't think that you need to argue your way out of it. I think for all the reasons that you outlined there, I think there are much worse situations. And I say I would be leaning Kirk, you know, because I think he's the better hitter. But if you're looking at it more holistically and you're looking at it from the perspective of organizational depth, I think you just made a very compelling case that, you know what, maybe you just you just take Maguire and roll with it. it. Ultimately, to me, this one comes down to how is he hitting? Because we have a good sense of what he's like defensively. Uh, you know, of course, you want to monitor that as well. But how is he hitting? Is he someone who is going to falter the way he did in 2020? If that's the case, you're probably not worried about him getting claimed anyway. If you truly evaluate him to be a player who's you know going to struggle as badly as Reese Maguire did in a very limited sample last year, all right, he gets claimed, so be it. If you evaluate him to be better than that and more like the guy we saw in 18 and 19, then you probably definitely hang on to him and just see what happens and know that Kirk will get his chance eventually. So this is why I have, uh, I don't know if I've made the case in the podcast yet, but I've written it a few times that uh, I've kind of been advocating that the Blue Jays should go out and sign a veteran catcher on an on roster like minor league deal. And like that's going to be a tough sell for whoever that veteran guy is because there really isn't a clear path to playing time, right? And so when you're a veteran guy signing a minor league deal, you want there to be a real opportunity that you're going to go into camp and be able to get a big league job at some point because you want to get paid. Like it's very obvious. So it's going to be tough. But I think the Blue Jays could really use that guy in the Caleb Joseph mold of 2020, particularly now understanding that the the 2021 season is going to start with an alternate site environment instead of a triple a squad right which in a, in a funny way actually kind of makes a little bit of a case for carrying alejandro kirk on the big league club to start the season because that's the best place for him to continue his development because he's going to be getting actual bats there's nowhere else where he's going to get live game played appearances you can send him to the alternate site which would be more doable if you got that veteran guy to be on your taxi squad which is the other layer of this is you're gonna have a taxi squad and you have to have a catcher on it so if that's going to be kirk 
great. He's going to be around your big league club, but he's not going to get into games. He's not getting that benefit. And then he's not going to get in the benefit of being at the alt site and seeing sort of the, the scrimmages there as well, which I guess is a step up from nothing. Uh, still not as good as real live game game played appearances. So like, I think that if you can get a Tyler Flowers in here or, or a Matt Weeders, who are kind of like the two names that come to mind who are still on the market, like, great. That guy just has to be willing to take the, like, to accept the fact that it's going to be tough. You're going to really need an injury, basically, to get some sort of playing time. Like, Caleb Joseph got his, like, half of a cup of coffee last year, but he really didn't have much big league time last year. And he was kind of, like, a great fit because he bought in so hard to that role. And he, I think, was really important to the culture of that club last year, as was, like, well-publicized. And he, it didn't, you know, at least outwardly, it didn't seem to bother him that much that like he was up against it as far as getting big league playing time. I don't know if you're going to find another guy like that who's going to buy into that role in the same way. But I think it would make these decisions a lot easier for the Blue Jays if they knew like, okay, Tyler Flowers is here and like he is going to be our taxi squad veteran guy, our depth because like, hey, man, you know, Danny Jansen takes a foul tip, you know, opening day or the second game of the season off of his thumb and has to miss six weeks. All of a sudden you're in a bit of a pickle, particularly if you lost Reese McGuire to the Pittsburgh Pirates at the end of spring training on waivers. And now all of a sudden, like that great young catching depth that we've been talking about all winter that you have on your 40-man roster. Well, now all of a sudden it's Kirk, Raleigh Adams and Gabby Moreno. You know, like all of a sudden your depth got real shallow, real fast. So I think adding that veteran guy would be a real boon for this club. I think it makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think that that's something the Blue Jays would have interest in. We'll see if it materializes. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, I think, to kind of explore just adding depth at those positions where you see the most attrition. And that's why, you know, when they keep adding pitchers, hey, always a good thing. If they're non-roster pitchers, Liriano, see what happens, you know, yeah. Tim Meza, bring him back. What's, what's he got? You know, those are always moves that make sense in my opinion. And so if they can persuade someone like a Tyler Flowers, I think that would make sense because as you said, it, depth is, is super, super valuable. And a catcher, you know, that, that is one position where they have a chance here to probably preserve it. And I think by the end of spring, as these things usually go, the decision will be clear because either, you know, if McGuire goes out and he's hitting really well or he's doing enough, he'll probably have a, a strong case for that job. But Kirk, of course, trying to force the issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is worth you know mentioning that like Kirk came into camp in great shape. Yep. He's looked really good so far. And you know, all the, everything we've heard has been pretty glowing. Like hearing Robbie Ray talk about him was like that bit was a little bit eye opening for me. Like because yeah. like Robbie Ray is pretty like guarded guy, you know, like he's, he doesn't, you know, share a ton of insight with us but like when he was talking about Alejandro Kirk like he was you know pretty effusive in his praise of like hey this guy you know I really formed a connection with this guy and to me that's impressive because like Alejandro Kirk coming into you know like the final two weeks of the season last year you know remember this is a club that was trying to qualify for the postseason like there's you know Kirk hasn't played above high A he steps in with Robbie Ray who's probably one of the more challenging guys to catch on that pitching staff when you think about yeah. how exceptional his stuff is like how much it moves and how wicked it is and then also his obvious command issues and the the days when he just like is not entirely sure where the ball is going i thought that you know robbie ray's comments on how strong of a presence kirk was from behind the plate i don't know i that that really sat with me of like oh okay you know like this is maybe this guy actually like maybe the development is there enough for him to be a, a big league catcher right now yeah, and one way or the other, at this point, it's going to be a young group of catchers on this team. I mean, Jansen, kind of in his third 
third year? Did he debut at yeah. the end of 18? This Somewhere would be his that. third year, I believe. Yeah. Maguire, too. Like, young in the league. Old enough to have experience, for sure. They've learned a lot in the last few seasons. But either way, a pretty young catching core. Yeah, they're kind of on that borderline. I think they're both, like, 26, right? So they're yeah. both, like, not, you know, young, young. Not kids. You're right. But they're, like, they're entering their athletic primes, sort of. But, yeah, I mean... We'll see how it shakes out. Like you said, it's one of those things that's just gonna, it's like the, you know, Tellez Grichuk thing, like where yeah. are guys gonna play? It's all gonna sort itself out. 162. I promise you. A lot of games, a lot of opportunities. <laughs> I promise you. Everybody's yeah. gonna get played appearances. You know, this stuff's gonna sort itself out. Before we take a break, let's talk about Mickey Calloway because that has been uh, the, the big topic today here on, on March 4th. We both were uh, on a, a 30 minute Zoom call with Ross Atkins earlier today. That was about 28 minutes of Mickey Calloway discussion. If you are unfamiliar for whatever reason, I'm sure you are, but I mean, here's what we know via the like very important and very good reporting done in The Athletic by Britt Rowley and Katie Strang. Uh, we now know that Mickey Calloway is alleged to have sexually harassed multiple women that he came into contact with during his time in Cleveland's organization, where he was a developer and a coordinator, uh, ultimately their pitching coach. And at that time, Mark Spiro and Ross Atkins were both in leadership positions within that organization, within that front office. They worked extensively with Mickey Calloway, obviously had a relationship with him. He was hired during their time there. He was promoted during their time there. And like making your way up from developer to pitching coach, obviously like that's a pretty substantial climb and it would have required, you know, sign-offs from Mark Spiro, Ross Atkins and for them to get to know Mickey Calloway pretty well. Uh, and we know that Ross Atkins felt pretty strongly about him at the time, just based on the comments he gave to Joel Sherman in the New York Post several years ago, well before these allegations arose, it should be said. But so we know that they felt strongly about him at the time. And so now we are aware of these allegations. And both Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins have denied having any knowledge of what Mickey Calloway is alleged to have, you know, what his behavior, his conduct is alleged to to have been. And, and today, actually, Ross Atkins was extremely apologetic and owned up and took a lot of responsibility and was actually quite remorseful, I think, about the fact that this was alleged to have happened while he was in a leadership position. But then I guess what's difficult for people to square then is that within the great reporting at The Athletic from Strang and from Giroli, uh, is that you know are several people indicating that Callaway's behavior was kind of an open topic of discussion? I think the quote was uh, that it was the worst kept secret in the organization. So you know, how are you kind of reconciling these things? Because um, I think that's probably like where it gets tough for a lot of Blue Jays fans when they're trying to think about you know how much responsibility Ross Atkins, Mark Shapiro should kind of bear for employing someone who who was alleged to have been behaving like this at that time. Yeah, well, I guess to start, I mean, just the behavior itself is is obviously yeah, not absolutely. acceptable. I should have said that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's just abhorrent and obviously put people in very, very uncomfortable positions. So absolutely. that's, yeah, just kind of a, a baseline that I think we obviously are, and you agree with that as well. And and I, I presume that our, our listeners do, but worth saying nonetheless. And then from there, we get some of the comments that you alluded to, Arden, Atkins saying, among other things, that it was, quote, a failure on my part, that he didn't create an environment where other employees would feel comfortable coming forward with these allegations, with this information about Callaway's behavior and the impact that it had on other people. And 
Atkins said, quote, I deeply apologize to anyone who ever faced harassment or didn't feel comfortable coming forward. At this point, the Blue Jays are working to make things more inclusive, they say, as far as their own hiring practices and as far as decisions that happen behind the scenes all the time in big corporations like the Jays. So that's kind of a blanket statement. Now, as for your question and how to reconcile those two things, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's hard to really, without having been obviously in that Cleveland organization at the time, never covered that team. It's hard to know exactly who would have known and how widespread that information would have been at various times based on the reporting that we're seeing in The Athletic. All right. It was, they're saying it was an open secret. So we have to obviously take that information pretty seriously. And that suggests that either the Blue Jays knew, or not the Blue Jays, but either Atkins and Shapiro were aware of something and didn't act at the time. They're telling us that wasn't the case. They're telling us that they were not aware and that it was more so a cultural issue at that time that led to an environment where there weren't consequences for some actions that absolutely deserve consequences. Yeah, it's, it's impossible for us to know, right? Not having been there, not having been in those positions like ourselves. I've never hired anybody, you know, and, and I don't think that I ever will. But like, I do think that uh, like at, at a minimum, like at a bare minimum, and Ross Atkins alluded to this today, as leaders in that organization, Ross Atkins, Mark Shapiro, like they had a blind spot for something really awful that was apparently an open secret within the organization um, that Mickey Calloway was allegedly making people feel extremely uncomfortable with his advances. Look, they've, they've both denied knowing about it. And at this point, I think you have to take them at their word. But I, I don't think that absolves them of any criticism for being unaware of something like that when you're in a leadership position, particularly when, by all accounts, this was discussed rather widely within the organization that they're in. You know, I think that they, they deserve criticism for having that blind spot. But I, I think that like, like that's kind of the looking back part of it, the looking forward part of it. And I think you touched on it a little bit is what have they done to improve as leaders in their current organization so that something like this doesn't happen with the Toronto Blue Jays, where they are now currently in leadership positions. You know, what, what's your hiring process now? How thoroughly are you scrutinizing the people you're bringing in now, right? Like how varied are the opinions that you're consulting? You know, how much input are you getting in these decisions? Are these decisions happening in a silo or are you actually consulting a wide array of positions across genders, across departments, across experience levels in order to really like vet your candidates? You know, like how comfortable are your current employees with coming forward with reports about conduct like this because that you know i think ross atkins was really effusive in apologizing for the fact that people at that time clearly did not feel comfortable coming forward and reporting behavior like this so like what do you have in place now so that people in your organization in your workplace do have that level of comfort to you know so they do have like a clear process where this can be raised with management and people will a be believed be supported, and then they will see some sort of legitimate action taken. Like to me, that's kind of the the important forward-looking uh, aspect of this, right? And what we're seeing is a gradual evolution of what's acceptable in our society and what's acceptable within the baseball world. So obviously, anyone listening to this, I'm sure, has parallels that they've observed in their own life. Because you know, if you look back to 
kind of what I imagine baseball to have been like in say the seventies or the eighties. And from what I've read and from what I've observed and what you see in movies from the time, the stuff yeah. that was widely accepted then we now know and see to be totally unacceptable when it comes to the way that people would interact with people, the kinds of assumptions or quote unquote jokes that would be made. No question. There's been a huge, huge evolution on that front in the course of, we'll say the last generation. Now, if you look at the last 10 years, or honestly, the last 10 months, there have been a lot of changes and a lot of progress in that period of time. And so, you know, this is not a new thought by any means. But one thing that, you know, we have to now grapple with as a society, and certainly within this example in baseball, is how do we judge? How do we effectively judge the actions of the people around us or the groups that we belong to or our own selves? If, the standards of the time were were different then. And I think clearly in the case of like, if you're doing the stuff that Mickey Calloway was doing or sending those pictures unsolicited, that's obviously never okay at any time. But standards have evolved and do evolve. And, and hopefully will continue to, to the point that it's just so clearly obvious that this stuff is damaging when it does come up. And so, and so hopefully that becomes more widely recognized to the point that if it does happen, then it's just obvious that this person is is misbehaving as opposed to that person fitting into a pattern where it's more broadly accepted. Yeah, no, it's it's such a good point, right? And it's not just baseball, right? Like it's it's the world, but you know, our world is baseball. And like our world in particular is like baseball media. So I think about, you know, women that are, who are our colleagues who we share spaces with, you know, in clubhouses and who like via some of this reporting in the athletic, like were made to feel very uncomfortable by Mickey Calloway, allegedly. I mean, and, and you know, whenever stories like this come out where it's Jerry Porter or Mickey Calloway, when reporting on this is done, like there's always that line in the piece where, uh, uh, you know, some female who is quoted says, every young woman who's worked in baseball has a story like this. Right. Like there's always that line. And it's it, but, but it, it, like it's true. <laughs> and that's like what we need to kind of realize here, like in that sexual harassment, like is an issue in baseball. Like it's an issue in the world at large. It's an endemic problem. But like, it, you know, in our world, in baseball. Yeah, it's an issue. And like if you are not aware of that, like I just think you're in pretty extreme denial or you aren't paying attention or you aren't listening. To the women who are saying this and now you know thankfully saying it a lot more publicly and you know, it shouldn't have had to come to this where there is like a me too moment in baseball but um you know if this if this gets us progress and this moves us ahead then you know that's a good thing so like that would just kind of be my like my last thought on this would be like just like listen to the women who are telling you that this stuff is happening and telling you that they feel uncomfortable in the workplace and that they are being harassed and that they are just showing up trying to do their jobs just like you and I Ben, right? And they are just trying to feel comfortable and feel supported and not be put into like really terrible positions. You know, they deserve the same right to do their job free of harassment as everybody does. The perspectives that people need to hear are not you and me, like two straight white dudes talking on a podcast, right? Like we need to hear, you know, from women. You need to listen to women who have like, you know, are screaming from the rooftops about, about this stuff. So be empathetic. Think about the world around you, you know, and like how things like this can be occurring pervasively without you having any idea, right? Like if you're Ross Atkins, I think you've probably been thinking a lot 
about that lately. At the very least, that seems to have been the case for the people who have worked with Mickey Callaway or the, you know, with Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro having said, yeah, we had no idea. Like think about how it's possible that you could have no idea that this was, that this was happening. And then let's just think about like listening to the women who are telling us about this and actually making some legitimate systemic change going forward so that workplaces can just be more safe and more welcoming for future generations. For sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a great goal. It seems like we're a long way from that right now, but all the more reason then to strive toward that goal, obviously as a sport for baseball. And, you know, I do think about Kim Ang just being hired for this, the first woman who's a GM in Major League Baseball just this past offseason. You think of, A, just the amount of BS that she must have faced and other women probably faced and were pushed out or never felt welcomed in the first place into this space. And it's kind of a reminder of that. And, you know, as much as in some circles, it might have been seen as, hey, you know, this is proof that things are equal, or this is proof that we've arrived at this kind of higher ground. And relative to the past, yes, that's true. But there's still obviously a long way to go. Yeah, you look at Bianca Smith in, in Red Sox camp, kind of first female coach in the game. It's good to see this progress, but I think, you know, Ross Atkins pretty much hit on the head when he talked to, to us for three minutes this morning. Baseball's too white, it's too male. We need more perspectives. We need more diversity. All right, let's step away. When we uh, continue, we will uh, cover everything else going on with Toronto Blue Jays when we continue on at The Letters. It continues on at the letters, Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson, Smith, our producers, Mike Tassoni and Christian Ryan, Ben news out of Blue Jays camp today. And it was uh, really the only news that you get out of spring. And that's bad news for Nate Pearson, who has suffered a grade one groin strain on Monday. I believe it was they pitched happened during his outing. Wasn't so bad that he had to leave the outing, but you know, he, he was a little bit erratic during it. So maybe it does like explain some of the misses that we saw from him. And then, then, you know, clearly it's something he brought to the team's attention afterwards. Um, let's play is, uh, you know, the good news, bad news game, right? Good news. It's a grade one strain, which is like the, the least severe one that you can right. have. So you would assume the recovery timeline is on the shorter end. Bad news is it happens as Nate Pearson's ramping up for the season. And uh, you can talk to any pitcher and they will tell you that like when something like this happens now, when you are building up, it sets, you know, you take a week off throwing two weeks off throwing that sets you back several, several steps and can actually really delay your preparation for the season, particularly if you were building up to be a starter as Nate Pearson was. Right. So we don't know exactly how long he's going to be out right now. Charlie Montoya describing him as day to day. It's always hard to know, but Ross Atkins was saying, is it a week? Is it two weeks? Of course, they don't want to be pinned down on timelines. That's, you know, basically something that all sports franchises understandably try to avoid. And so we're left guessing. But Pearson right now is taking a break from that game action. He's not on the schedule for the next few days. And like you said, that will set him back at least a little bit. Like opening day at this point is kind of the optimistic return time. If if I'm like from my standpoint, that's kind of how it looks. Yeah, and they're like they don't attach timelines to these things because everybody recovers differently, right? Right? Like there's no you know cookie cutter you can apply to everybody when it comes to injuries. Everybody's you know just physically is just different, so they're gonna monitor his recovery and see how it goes. Maybe it goes quicker. 
than possible. And maybe he is actually able to kind of push that opening day envelope. I think most realistically, like opening day might be in question at this point. Really. I think it is in question. Yeah. Right. We're not going to make any assumptions is with the information that we have right now. It's going to depend on how he recovers and when he's actually able to get back to throwing and get back up on a mound. But it's like I was saying to, you know, earlier, man, like I was talking to Ross Stripling about this last week. Like, you know, he's a little bit behind in camp and like he had you know a, a very crazy week in texas during that storm that they had and that which coincided with you know him and, and his wife having their first child so like all that zaniness that was going on he didn't have electricity or water for like 60 hours but throughout all that the storm the birth and everything like he made sure he had a way to throw like wow. he brought with him a like this kind of device i think it was called a, a tap throwing something uh it's in the story on sports.ca you can go look at it it's basically like this big black oven mitt that he would put on and he can like throw a ball inside of it and the the it looks like just a big sack and it just catches the ball when you throw it he's in the hospital room with four feet of space going through his throwing program throwing fastballs into this thing uh in a hospital because it was that important that he got his throwing in and that he continued to build up and he continued to replicate a throwing program because at this stage when you're building up it's like i said you take a week off that can screw you up big time if you're building up for for a starter's workload so to me that's you know that that's why i think opening day is going to be you know a challenge at this point for nate pearson and best case, he's there, and that's that's fine. But as you say, I mean, you look at just how they plan these things very deliberately, right? You go from throwing bullpens on your own to throwing them in the camp. Then maybe you mix in some live BP. Then you're in a game for one innings, two, three, and you progress very methodically toward the goal at the end of spring for a starting pitcher of being ready to throw, let's say, five innings, which probably would be fine um, if Pearson gets to that point. But at this point, no guarantees and man, I mean, you know, just as a baseball fan, of course, you want to see Nate Pearson, right? Like he's a fun pitcher to watch in that game that he got injured up to 99.9 miles an hour. Like he throws it as hard as anyone in the game. He's got good breaking stuff. This should be his first full season. So as a fan of the game, I want to see him pitch. It's, you know, hopefully he's out there. Hopefully we can assess him, get a sense of, you know, where he's at. How good can he be? He's 24 years old now, not just a prospect. I mean. Maybe technically some lists have him ranked as a prospect, but really it's time to see what he can do. And so as again, as a fan of the game, you, you want to see this guy on the mound and not on the IL. Yeah, no, he's a big leader and obviously very real implications for the Toronto Blue Jays pitching staff because, you know, it kind of depends on how you feel about Robbie Ray going into the season, how optimistic you are about him. But, you know, at worst, Nate Pearson, the third best pitcher on the staff, uh, I think for a lot of people, the second best pitcher after Hunjin Ryu. So not having him out of the gates and, you know, hopefully he's able to come back, you know, sometime in in April, uh, you know, May at the latest and still have, you know, a, a, the pitch the majority of, of the season that's great but coming out of the gates you know the, the Blue Jays are going to be a little bit shorthanded pitching wise on a pitching staff which we have already identified as kind of the weak point on a club that is going to score a whole bunch of runs and you know I, I don't know defense like how much does that matter in the 2021 game we, we might find out <laughs> with this team this year but uh you know pitching wise you know it's not really a staff that could afford to lose somebody from the top end like this so what's kind of the the trickle down do you reckon coming out of this injury as we head towards opening day well, just real quick on the defense. It's really interesting because that is one of the things we're missing right now. You know, for game day, you can get that sense of, uh, you know, this pitcher is, his velo's there, is really working well. 
But 4-3 on game day, I mean, there's a lot that is left to the imagination. So we then have to you know, wait and see, essentially. And as for the question of how the Blue Jays might backfill that pitching staff, they have a lot of candidates for those spots. Obviously, guys like Trent Thornton, Anthony Kay, Thomas Hatch could be in that mix. Stripling, of course, one of those guys. And Merriweather, Stephen Matz, a lot of names. So everyone would essentially get you know, shifted a little bit um, if they do have to begin the season without Pearson in that rotation. And that's inevitable at some point, whether it's the beginning of the season or a, a month in. We certainly know that's going to happen. But it, you know, it really does reinforce to me, too, just the importance of Ryu and how much, you know, like you cannot have him, especially with Pearson now on the sidelines, like they really need Ryu. Has he ever battled injuries in his career? <laughs> I don't know. I yes, don't know. he has. He also is, yeah, I mean, just so good. So, you know, <laughs> they, they need him. Yeah. So look, you know, this is why you build the depth that the that the Blue Jays have, right? And this is why you acquire the amount of fungible dudes that the Blue Jays have. And this is why you stretch out as many guys as Blue Jays are. Like there's a lot of pitchers right now. And you mentioned them, Stripling, Thornton, Hatch, Merriweather, who have been told, like, hey, we're gonna stretch you out at the beginning of spring. And then we're gonna get to like March 16th. We're gonna get to like St. Patrick's Day and kind of decide. Like and be and say, all right, what what are you going to do? What's your role going to be? Depending on what our needs are right now and what our circumstances are, and those circumstances can be impacted by, say, an injury to Nate Pearson or perhaps uh, you know underperformance from somebody, and like maybe Tanner Roark doesn't have it or what what have you, right? So they're they the Blue Jays are just that's why they are stretching all these guys out, and that's why they are kind of delaying some of these decisions. So yeah, like you said, it's you know look for a down roster guy who is kind of on that bubble. Might be getting some starts early in the year. We have said, like, look, the Blue Jays are going to use 12, 15 starters this year. I mean, by the end of the first month of the season, they may have already used seven or eight. We're going to see a lot of players make starts this year. See a lot of players, I think, kind of have somewhat fluid roles where, like, you know, if you're Ross Stripling, like, in the month of April, like, yeah, you might have a couple starts, but then you might also have a couple of those outings where you are that guy who's coming in after, say, Robbie Ray takes two trips through and you're kind of handling that third trip through the order and facing nine hitters, like, out of the bullpen. I think there could be a lot of guys who just have those variable roles. Right. And, you know, you think back a few months to off-season mode for this team, and this is why they had interest in Kevin Gosman or your Sagano, Tanaka, Guys who obviously Paxton, Paxton, Kluber, Kluber. didn't work out um, in those instances. And yet, you know, this is a team that knows that there's there's a need on that pitching side. Jake Odorizzi out there, not holding my breath on a reunion. Um, yeah. Or shouldn't say a reunion, on a, on a deal there. But you never know. And as we've said before, for this organization, they need someone to step into that role. And Pearson is the most logical internal candidate so anytime that he's sidelined, it's him missing reps toward fulfilling that potential as a frontline starter for this team. Never a good thing. And the Blue Jays very hopeful that it's just a minor thing. But when you have that kind of upside and that kind of potential, even minor injuries, I think, are very noteworthy for someone of Nate Pearson's potential. Yeah, I think just based on the depth of the organization, like you, you feel better about something like this if you're the Blue Jays because you're not like going out looking for the Edwin Jacksons of, of this world. You're like, oh, okay, cool. Thomas Hatch gets an opportunity now. Yeah, nothing wrong with that, right? Um, or maybe like we just get a little bit more creative, right? We do some some tandem starting roles, you know, and, and maybe like the like I was kind of saying earlier, maybe there are guys like like Stripling and Merriweather who fit into that sort of 
nine to 12 batter, like me a name for this guy, like the third trip through guy, you know, yeah. like the, I like, I've, cause I the feel like it is. Guy. Yeah, I don't Tampa, need a name for it, right? Because we got yeah. the opener, right? So we yeah. got a name for that. We need a name for this guy because it is actually a really a role that you're seeing across the game now. And like the Dodgers been doing it for years. Like Ross yep. Stripling was doing this before. It was cool with the Dodgers where it's like, hey, started when two trips through, you are coming in for nine to 12 batters. Like you got to get nine outs. Like, and that's like, that's an important role in the modern game. Like those are still leverage outs. Like if you're facing one trip through the order, you're going to face the best hitters. At some point, you're facing the entire lineup. So you can't protect a lead in the eighth and ninth inning if you can't get the lead to that point. So that guy who was coming in and facing that third trip through and getting those outs, those are important outs. So uh, I don't know. We got to name this guy third trip through. Yeah, no, it's it's a very important role. And, you know, you think about this Jay's staff early in the season, arms are fresh. I mean, it's kind of risky because you don't want to overtax guys in the first few weeks. But if they had to, they probably could pull some guys early, use that bullpen a lot, and just mix and match. I really sense that that's going to be the theme this year on this Jay's staff is mixing and matching and trying to make it all work cool thing right now in in camp is seeing the next wave of young yeah. pitchers for me and we are starting to see like Simeon Woods Richardson on a mound Alec Manoa on a mound Joey Murray like on a mound it is cool to see the young pitching in this organization which is has been developing over several years start to kind of poke yeah. through the clouds a little bit and finally you know catch up to the hitters right like the Blue Jays had this wave of young hitters come up and you all know the names Bichette, Biggio, Guerrero etc and there wasn't a ton of pitching that came up with them and now you're starting to see that wave of pitching catch up a little bit like didn't even mention like an Adam Cloffenstein who's in camp who is like a, a super interesting high upside young guy you know it's not there yet and you don't want to rush any of that but, you know, in this camp, you are starting to get a little bit of a look at some of the pitching that is coming and that is going to be supplementing this roster in years to come. And I don't know, I derive a little bit of energy from that, my man. I got to be honest, when we're talking to Alec Manoa and Simeon Woods Richardson after these outings, I, uh, you know, it, it, it uplifts me a little bit, the youthful energy. Good, man. That's great. That's, that's good. Always welcome, I think, at this point in time to have a little bit of uh, uplifting content and attitudes from, you know, these prospects were obviously so excited to, to be in the major leagues to produce to test themselves against the very best because that is what you're doing when you're facing the New York Yankees. And so it's a great opportunity for them to do that. And I think it's true. It's fun to see the not only with the, the very young players, but even the veterans on this Blue Jays team seem to be very excited about this group. The uh, young players who we've seen emerge in the last few years seem very excited. And of course, the prospects too. So spring training should be a time of excitement. I think that that's, you know, that's the beauty of it for almost every single team. You can kind of dream about what your ideal season looks like. Even if you're the Tigers or the Orioles, you know, you're, you're watching those young prospects coming up and you know what's Adley Rushman going to look like or Cabrian Hayes whoever whatever player you want to pick on a losing team there's something you can root for and in the Jays case not only do they have a very good major league team they also have prospects coming up 
Yeah. And you just get a sense for the, like the mentality a little bit, the mindset, which is something that I know I've been kind of harping on a little bit. It's just like, these kids are mean, man. Like these kids want to win. They're on the mound and they don't give a, you know, like they are coming at you. Like, like look at that, like that Yankees lineup the other night that Sidney Woods Richardson at 20 yeah. has to go in for his first like live actual real game since 2019. August 2019 it would have been the end of the minor league yeah. season that year. No minor league games played in 2020. Yeah. He goes to the alt site and he faces like Jonathan Davis and, uh, you know, I don't know, Reese McGuire at times and et cetera. Like he faces big leaguers there. Sure. But, you know, coming into a real game under the lights at Steinbrenner Field there and it is like Judge LeMahieu, Stanton, Hicks. Like he is facing like legit Yankees and he is working quickly on the mound. He's attacking. He's like throwing first pitch curveballs and like nice little change ups. And he is like out there competing at 20. Man, that's not the easiest thing to do. There's a lot, a lot of 20 year old pitchers who can step into that environment against that lineup and, and thrive the way that he did and bring that energy and that type of presence that Simeon Woods Richardson did. That's, you know, that's why a lot of us have been saying like, Hey, this kid's advanced. Like this kid's pretty polished and he's like somebody to watch this year. Uh, you know, as things develop. For sure. I, I got a text from former ATL producer Sam McKee saying that, and I haven't put a stopwatch to it, but he said that Woods Richardson struck out Stanton in 37 seconds, which to me is pretty impressive. Like just not the baseball's a time sport, obviously, but you think about that, 37 seconds, that's pretty fast. And he struck out Stanton that quickly? Well, this was in, it was in my Woods Richardson thing at sports.ca. He averaged fewer than 15 seconds between pitches in the minors. Amazing. Like one of the fastest workers like in baseball last year in the majors, Wade Miley was like the fastest dude in baseball. And he was 20 seconds between pitches. Woods Richardson was regularly averaging fewer than 15 seconds between pitches. And like, he would go faster if yeah. he could. <laughs> Oftentimes he's just waiting for the hitter to come back in, like to watch one of his starts is to like get used to seeing him like standing on the ground on the mound with the glove in front of his face like just waiting just waiting yeah. for the hitter he's ready yeah, yeah. he's ready to go and the hitters slow it down sometimes right that's 100%. that's sometimes why that it, it takes so long yeah but um it's it's like an athletic feat too though when you think about it because to have that kind of explosiveness three times 37 seconds like there's a reason most pitchers take their time. Like it actually, it helps them recover. Yeah. The Woods Richardson can just somehow do this anyway. Like that's, I, I truly find that impressive. No, yeah, you are like kind of regenerating that energy that you need to, yeah. to throw at the, you know, the effort that you do. So yeah, um, Alec Manoa also, man, like super yeah. impressive against the Yankees for just the uh, the approach. In his first inning, like he, he puts a runner on and he goes 2-0 to LeMayhew, which is like a pretty bad spot to be in as a pitcher. 2-0 to DJ LeMayhew with a runner on. And he challenges him with a two-seamer. Gets LeMayhew to roll over, ground into an inning-ending double play. Like just to throw that pitch with that confidence in that spot, huge. His second inning plunks Aaron Judge like two or three pitches in and gets into this like epic battle with Aaron Hicks where um, he starts him 3-1 and he's like kind of like nibbling at the corners. And like we talked to him about after the game and he kind of said he had a moment where he was kind of like, you know what, like screw this. I'm just going to attack this guy. I am not walking this dude. I'm going to throw him my heater. And he has this hilarious quote where he's like, and then the next one I threw, he hit 5,000 feet foul. But then he kept coming back to it. Threw him like three straight like challenge fastballs on the plate 
in a in a full count and then located a slider on the outside edge to Aaron Hicks. Are you kidding me? For a called third strike and then struck out the next two dudes after plunking Aaron Judge to start the inning, which is when for a lot of guys, like things could have spiraled and gone completely sideways and pear-shaped. So it's just cool to see Alec Manoa get to have those moments. I, I get it. Spring training game, right? Not the same atmosphere. Who knows what the hitters are working on. But to get to see him have that moment was really cool. For sure. And it, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen, like you said, last year in the in the 2020 season. There just weren't those opportunities to test themselves uh, against players from other organizations. So really good chance for for those guys entertaining for for us to follow and i think too like you talk about throwing strikes and just attacking that's been a message throughout this blue jays pitching staff all spring where charlie montoya when Pete walker are telling the pitchers guys challenge hitters you've got good stuff so whether that's chatwood steven matz robbie ray or ryan baraki you can go down the list there are a lot of guys on the staff who can kind of benefit from that advice clearly in the case of manoa in that example it resonated he executed with it, and the results were pretty good, too. Yeah. No, fans are going to love those guys, man. They are. You know, Joey Murray, some of these young pitchers that are, that are coming up right now. It's, you know, there's, uh, fans are going to love these guys, I'm, I'm telling you. Um, one more shout-out that was just really heartening to see was Tim Meza back on the mound. Right. You kind of alluded to him earlier in, in the podcast. I mean, he gets back on the mound, you know, however many months since his Tommy John surgery. Tommy John rehab, man, is a lonely, hard, long process. It's not fun. It's not easy for an athlete. It's just one of the most challenging things in this game. And he gets back on a mound the other day and is like 94, 95, you know, hard slider. Like he used to be a bit of a loopier slider. And now he's kind of, as we're seeing a lot of pitchers, kind of like tightening up the slider and make it more like cutter-ish in a way and throwing that hard, like high 80s slider like kind of ryan baraki style a little bit and it's like really effective i think it was like a ground ball and two infield pop-ups and even like uh showing off a little bit of a two seam too like a little bit of a sinker that he's been working on which is kind of an interesting development for him he is a real left-handed relief option on this club he's not on roster so you know obviously he's against it uh without a 40-man spot right now but like really good to see him back on the mound and if he can be that effective going forward he's he's an interesting option for this team for sure. And it's it's about stuff at this point. You know, how much is it moving? How well can he locate it? It's kind of like a with him and Liriano, uh, you know, and I'm not sure that either one of them gets a spot necessarily. But with those two guys, it's almost like a true tryout because neither one of them is on the roster. So you're not worried about, you know, out of options or, you know, this guy's on, this guy has to pass through. It's like a tryout camp. It's like who of these two, maybe it's no one, maybe it's both, but who of these two can kind of step up and show that they can get some key outs because we know AL East, a lot of lefty bats, the need exists. Yeah, and look, even for a guy like Liriano, like there's going to be, I think, a lot of opportunities at the end of spring, even in other organizations, right? So every time he's pitching, like he's kind of like pitching for other teams as well. I don't know off the top of my head, like what kind of opt-out structure like he has, but he, you know, most minor league free agents would have some sort of outs mm-hmm. in those deals. So uh, like there, you know, I think that as we've said, it's not just the Blue Jays are going to run through a ton of pitchers. It's 30 MLB clubs. So you're, you know, there's going to be opportunities at the end of spring. I would imagine if he's effective and the Blue Jays don't have room for him, for him to get a big league job somewhere else. And if not, then I think there's certainly going to be an opportunity for him and at the Blue Jays alternate site where he can kind of, you know, stand on guard with, uh, you know, and wait for I don't know, somebody to get hurt, somebody to underperform, something like that. 
uh, you know, as, we, as we've mentioned, the Blue Jays are going to run a pretty deep staff pitchers going to see a lot of guys going up and down and, and we're going to see a lot of shoulder fatigue and elbow soreness and, and you know, all these kinds of things this year. And for the Blue Jays, you know, having their alt site, I imagine in Dunedin, I think it'll, you know, kind of depend on because you got the single A and double A guys coming in around that same time. And then you're going to have, you know, basically what would have been your triple A team will be your alt site. And they're also going to have the big leaguers using the facility as well, right? Because you're playing in Dunedin. So I do wonder about the protocols and the spacing and if they have to like bleed over into the old Maddox Center or something, or if they have to find some other space. But assuming the alternate sites in Dunedin, uh, you know, you could see Francisco Iriano sticking around there. I mean, just think about it from a kind of logical perspective. Do you want to send your next tier of players. When you're playing in Florida, you're playing your home games in Florida, do you yeah. want to send your insurance layer of players to Buffalo or Rochester where it's cold? <laughs> like, I don't know. Just keep them in Florida as long, you know, as long as you can do it safely with the protocol protocols. I think there's a strong case for having the alt site in Florida to start. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Have I uplifted you, Ben? Yes. I brought you I would some, say. some positivity here. <laughs> well, you know what? It's um, you know what? It's there there are obviously lots of interesting things with this team and and in some cases like with the callaway stuff with the pearson stuff not the most uplifting news necessarily but uh still a very interesting time of year and lots more uh lots more baseball and decisions and intrigue to come for sure in the next few months wanted to end on that high note because uh, yeah all the other news today was somewhat dispiriting somewhat demoralizing so yeah it is good to see some of the kids going out on the mound showing out big league spring training you know yet another reminder of why i wish i was down there to to watch it live maybe next year that's ben nicholson smith he's on twitter at b nicholson smith my name's arden zwelling we're here every week throughout spring throughout the regular season we thank you for listening we thank our producers mike tassoni and christian ryan and we're going to talk to you next week on at the letters <laughs> <laughs>